0: Well, good morning and welcome to Christ the King. We're glad that uh, you all are here this morning. We're going to continue uh, our look at this passage in First Peter, which is by all accounts one of the most difficult to understand. Uh, scholars from the very beginning have debated what, in fact, does this verse uh, in First Peter uh, mean. And I think uh, it's it's easy for us to get distracted by the part in there where it says that Jesus descended, and went and spoke to the spirits in prison, and and all of that. It can be a, a great distraction. So, uh, if you have your scriptures with you, open them to First Peter chapter three, and we'll start reading again this verse 18 through 22. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's conveniently printed in your bulletin. You can see it there. And uh, you can follow along with that. So now, if you can, uh, hear God's Word. And let's uh, take a look at this passage again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Having been made, having been subjected to him. This is God's Word. I told you last week that uh, after the Battle of Elba, which is uh, very familiar, those of you that studied ancient uh, world history, Julius Caesar wrote a letter to uh, some of his friends. And in the letter, he said, Aveni vidi vici. Very familiar. I came, I saw, I conquered. And that phrase, veni vidi vici, has become known for uh, and used by people in different ways to express a very quick, swift, and overwhelming victory. And uh, in a very real way, this passage in Peter is that Jesus came, he saw, and he conquered. And Peter is making uh, with all the passion and power that he can muster in his language, expressing this incredible cosmic victory that Jesus accomplished over the powers uh, that were against him. The problem with the passage, of course, and I don't feel that it's really a problem once you get to understand it, but the problem that people have had with the passage is this little section, 19 and 20, where it talks about uh, Jesus descending into the grave. And the church, very early on, has tried to uh, get its head around this and tried to address what was Peter really meaning. And uh, for various reasons, it has been a problem. There's four, what I told you, four basic uh, theories of what Peter meant by this. The first one, uh, just as a refresher very quickly, is what's called descensus ad Infero, Infero, inferno. And what he's talking about is the descent into hell that Jesus, after his death, uh, and he has. Bodies placed in the grave that somehow, in some way, he went in the Spirit down into uh, the the regions of hell. And there he preached uh, to the spirits or the powers or whatever it is that's down there. The people that were there from the days of Noah or some other people, maybe Old Testament saints that had not yet uh, uh, come to faith or whatever it is. All these people, we're not sure exactly who they are, but they're people identified with Noah's day, and that Jesus somehow preached to them in this time, this three days. There's many, many problems with this, and I want to tell you just up front, it's not a good theory. Uh, the The people that presented this, the ancient fathers, uh, church fathers that presented it, were trying to square uh, the, the passage in Peter with uh, phrases from the Apostles' Creed, he descended into the grave, and so on. And so, it... it it was not looking at the passage and trying to figure out what is the passage saying. They were trying to fit it into church tradition, which is a big danger. And the church has suffered from that. Even today, we suffer from the same thing. So I'm just going to tell you, that's not a good, it's not a good theory uh, and for a number of reasons. And if you have questions, I'll be happy to, to talk to you about it after church. Uh, There's a second theory, which is called the post resurrection proclamation, that that this is simply saying that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits and powers and authority his victory uh, at his ascension when he rose from the dead and, and rose into heaven to take up his seat there. That one also is not faithful to the passage. It doesn't really reflect what the passage is saying. It's just trying to explain something that's very hard to understand. So these two, I don't recommend them. Uh, Of course, I can't force you to believe them, even though you should always believe what I tell you. Um, But those two are not necessarily very good. A third one, which is very well accepted today, which still has some problems, believe me, is the pre-incarnate Christ that Jesus somehow, as He did in many other occasions, through a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance through angels or people, preached through Noah by the Spirit to the people who lived in Noah's day. And in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Peter also reminds the readers there that Peter was a preacher of righteousness. And so that wicked generation in Noah's day Noah was preaching to them uh, righteousness, saying, you know, judgment is coming, therefore you need to flee judgment, appeal to God for mercy, and in fact, we've got room in the ark, you know, we'll we'll make space next to the elephants or something, and we'll get you in there. So if you want to be rescued, there is rescue available, and a lot of scholars feel that that's what... What what Peter is referring to is is uh, Christ preaching through Noah to that earlier generation. There's a fourth theory that's come up just really in the last century or so, and that's because they discovered uh, these documents that were in part lost. First and second Enoch, which are apocryphal documents. won't talk too much about that, but these documents have in them uh, a, a mythical story of Enoch and Noah, who was his uh, grandson, great-grandson, and these spirit beings uh, you read about in uh, Genesis chapter 6. Uh, in If you saw the movie Noah with Russell Crowe, The Watchers, it's a very mythical tale. But what's interesting about this is it was widely known and accepted as a true story in all of Asia Minor where this letter is written. People that didn't even believe the Bible or didn't even know anything about Judaism or ancient uh, writings like that still had this this myth was part of their subculture, part of their understanding, their literature. And so Noah, or Peter, I'm getting all these people mixed up now. Noah, Peter, Enoch, Chuck. Uh, getting all these things uh, together in their mind that Peter is somehow drawing on that story to make a point. And so when you put a few of these things together, it starts to make sense that whatever Peter's doing, we're not completely sure what he was doing, and I don't know that we will ever know, but whatever he was doing, he knew what he was doing, and the original audience understood his point. And there are a lot of things from the text that we can understand. So let's go through them quickly and I'll finish up where I left off last week. First of all, He came. His humanity and His mission of atonement is very clearly stated. We know this. What He says in verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins. What that means is, Jesus' death on the cross did something cosmically in time, past, present, and future. That it was a powerful event. That the death of Jesus on the cross accomplished something that reached back into the past, that affected the present day, and reached into the future as long as humanity exists. That's the cosmic power of His victory on the cross trampling down as we confess last week from an ancient creed of the church trampling down death by death by doing what no one has ever been able to do or could do destroying death through his own death something none of us would have dreamed up or thought and the the writer of Hebrews picks this up he says in sacrifices in, in those kinds of sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So w- what happened there is, is understood by us when someone sacrifices their life for another or when you take an innocent lamb or a goat or a bull or a turtle dove or whatever you want to say and you kill that animal in your place that the innocent is being put to death for you and as you in your place. And of course, when it comes to Jesus, it's it's a whole different thing because the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and those types of things to atone for sin. They're just a reminder of our sin. And all they do is, is cover over our sin. Anticipating, waiting for something that will really cleanse the sin, really take it away from us really and truly atone for that sin. Really make a payment. And so very clearly, Peter is telling us, Christ suffered once for sins, cosmically, powerfully. And then he says this, next phrase, righteous for the unrighteous. We talked about this a lot last week, I don't want to go over it very much, but what he's saying is this, and folks, if you do not get this, you cannot possibly understand Christianity. It's it's completely misunderstandable. Unless you get this, the righteous for the unrighteous. God is saying to all humanity, past, present, and future, for all times, no matter how far we go, no matter where we go in the world, how many millions of years it may last, doesn't really matter, but for all time and all eternity, God, of all the gods in the universe, whatever's out there in the cosmic world, God is saying this, me for you. I'll give My life for you. I will give My Son for you. I will give My blood for you. I know you're suffering. I will suffer. I know you died. I will die. I know your destiny is the grave. I will go in the grave. And I will change your destiny. It's an incredible... No religion in the world is like it. No religion compares to it. Every religion in the world, and even sadly, large parts of Christianity, are all about me for you. Uh, me, me for you, God. I'll do for you. I'll perform. I'll jump through the hoops. I'll obey. I'll be good. I'll give money to the church. I'll do whatever I have to do to get your favor. And all the time, the Bible is standing with all of its might and saying to the world, no, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't need your sacrifices. Psalm 50, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I was hungry, I wouldn't come to you. I don't need your sacrifice. I don't need your obedience. I don't need anything from you. I have created you in My image to pour My love into you. Now once that, once that starts to come into your consciousness, God saying to us, me for you, obedience no longer becomes an issue. It's not like, well, should I or shouldn't I? It's absolutely I want to obey this God. Absolutely I want to follow Him. Absolutely when I fail, when I stumble, when I make a wreck of things, I will not try to bring and placate Him with my paltry offerings. I will run to Jesus with all my might and with all my mess and with all my junk on me. And I will run and cling to Him because I know that in Him, if I touch to Him of His garment, what happens? I'll be cleansed. Do you see it? So we put away from us these ideas that we're somehow going to atone and, and, and pay back God. And we, we get into this thing where you know we're, we have what John Piper calls a debtor's ethic. I owe, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. And if that's your Christianity, then believe me, you are going to hate being a Christian. But when you know that it's me for you, when you know Jesus says me for you, and that starts to get down into your bones, then obedience is no longer... and repentance is something you, you are quick to do rather than rolling out all your trying to make up for what you've done. You run to Jesus. You fall at His feet. Forgive me, Lord. And how many times will He forgive you? Look at the cross if you want to know. How much? Who? Who's there? The righteous for the unrighteous. He lives the life. Listen, He lives the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserved. He suffered, not so that we would not suffer, but so that we could. A meaningful life, even if you suffer, even if you die. Your life is precious. Even if you weep the saddest tears, and some of you have had great tragedies in your life, all of us have at some point had great disappointments, great tragedies. Our hearts have been rent and torn apart. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ Himself collects those tears in His bottle. And that precious in the eyes of our Lord is the death of His saints. When He looks at you and He looks at me, He understands He's a God that knows because He went down into the grave, He suffered so that our suffering and our pain have meaning. Otherwise, they're meaningless. The righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. What he's saying, what Peter is saying is, look, He has brought you to God. Therefore, every hindrance in your life, everything that you see as an obstacle, God has removed, so that every breath you take, Every work you do, whether it's in uh, the, the regular, just your, your ordinary daily work, or with your family, with your friends, with your recreation, everything you do and everywhere you go, every note that Paulette plays on the piano or Ian plays on the bass, every note that, that Ugo sings, all these things have intense meaning, power. They're kept by God to beautify and, and enliven His creation. And that He means to return this world back to its original place and that Jesus Christ himself has gathered up all the broken pieces of this cosmic world and universe he's gathered them up and he's brought them to God and now through the power of his holy spirit who lives and abides with us every single day of our lives is putting back together the original creation and it's going to be even more glorious than the original it's going to be better than eden and that's what He means to do through you and through me. So Peter is making an, an absolutely cosmic statement about the victory of God in this realm in this world. And then he steps down and it says, look, he saw, verses 19-20, through these are the ones that that we struggle with, but look, step back for a minute, instead of getting all caught up, well, is he he talking about some kind of post-mortem salvation, so after you die you can have a second chance? No, that's not in Peter's mind. Peter is drawing back, whatever he's doing, folks, we're not completely sure, but whatever he's doing, he's drawing back into a story that was known by everybody Jew and Gentile they didn't have to have a Bible see this story of Noah and the flood was well known in Asia Minor by everyone they even minted coins with Peter uh, with uh, Enoch and Noah on the coins I mean it was amazing what was going on and they've they've wondered what this was and they find this these documents uh, a century or two ago and they start to see well, this is the context so we don't interpret it by these apocryphal books. We're not going to try to interpret this Scripture that way. But what we are going to do is let, it, let us help us understand the context of those people. And those people understood what he was talking about. He went, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He brought safely through water. He's not talking about literal water. He's talking about figuratively the flood. The Noah story is drawing an analogy, if you will. Think with me. You've got to put your thinking... I know it's early on Sunday morning. Put your thinking caps on. He's drawing on a story that everyone would know and the context would have been understandable to them. And he's saying, look, sin is a prison. It's a place of loss, bondage, and judgment. That's what sin is. He's drawing on the Noah story, and he's saying that sin is a prison, and it's a judgment on us. But then he says this But God is patient. So you don't have to try to figure that out. I mean, it's in the text, it's clear. God is patient. He says to Adam and Eve, Where are you? He doesn't strike them with judgment, He looks for them. All right? God is patient, but He does judge. the flood is obvious. The judgment is coming. But God is a loving Father, and so he prepares an ark, because he's merciful and just and righteous and loving and caring. So he prepares this ark. And what Peter is saying, folks, I said it last week, maybe it, it kind of got lost in because we were in a hurry, but he's saying Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the salvation in this cosmic judgment that did come once in Noah's day, that righteousness was preached in Noah's day, but that people rejected it in Noah's day just like they're rejecting it now. Peter's telling the audience, look, you all are suffering persecution, right? That's what the whole letter is about. They're suffering persecution. And Peter is telling them, look, you're suffering just like Noah did in, in his day. And judgment was coming just like Noah's day. But hasn't arrived yet. But just like in Noah's day, Jesus is the ark. God has prepared for us, all of us, the original audience plus us, a place of safety in Christ Himself. So this, there's this assault against sin, but there's also the provision held out in these complicated, admittedly a bit confusing and perplexing verses. The provision is held out. And what is that provision? Think about it with me. What is the provision? It is rescue by baptism. He says it as plain as day on the nose on your face. He says, baptism is our rescue. It is the provision. Baptism corresponds to this. What he's talking about when he says baptism corresponds to this, he's talking about that story 19 and 20. He's talking about the Noah story. It's really very lovely. It's beautiful. And if you can get past the, the, the part that distracts us, you can start to see how amazing it really is. He's saying baptism corresponds to the Noah story. That God is going to rescue us through water. Now what does he mean? Is he saying that it's, that the act of baptism is going to save you? Absolutely not. Look carefully what he says. Not the removal of... Of dirt. It's not the physical act of baptism that saves you. Baptism corresponds to the Noah story. Baptism is a picture that points to Noah's story. Not the cleansing of dirt from your body. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said. I just said it a moment ago. Track with me. This is so helpful. Think about it but rather the appeal to God for a good conscience. In baptism, listen, in baptism, whether it's an adult coming for baptism as we observed a couple weeks ago on Easter, or if it's children coming for baptism as we also observed on Easter Sunday and Palm Sunday before that with the triplets, whether it's an infant or an adult, it makes no difference. Baptism is is speaking it's saying something we're not saying anything in baptism folks god is saying something in baptism god is declaring something in baptism god is saying that if you will agree with me that sin is a prison the judgment should come that the flood is right The judgment, we are all guilty and we should die in the flood. Listen, if you go to God and you repent of your sins, you say to God, I agree with you. Repentance is not just turning away, it's agreeing with God. Confession is agreeing and saying, yes, what I'm doing is wrong. No excuses. I get it. I know you're right and I'm wrong. And I will make no excuse for my sin." Then what God is saying, that that same water that deluged the earth, that drowned the earth in judgment, that same water in a figure, in a type, that same water will bear you up. That on the cross, what He is saying on the cross in Jesus Christ, the judgment, that landed on Jesus, also signals the rising of your life from death to life." Unbelievable what he's saying in these few verses. And sadly, we get caught up in the the particulars of 19 and 20. It can get lost on us. Baptism is a sign. You know, whether you're a Baptist or non-denominational or whether you're Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or whether you're Presbyterian or whether you're Episcopalian or whether you're Methodist or whether whatever you are, everybody, every Christian, believes that baptism is a sign and a seal. We all agree on that. We disagree about other things, and rightly so. But we all agree on that, that it's a sign that points to something else. It's not the thing itself. It points to something else. You see a sign outside of El Paso and it says El Paso. Nobody stops here and says, hey, where's El Paso? We know El Paso's there, down the road somewhere. A sign simply points to the place. And a seal, the seal of Holy Spirit, when we baptize someone, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not some other event that happens later. It happens right then when we baptize. Holy Spirit seals that person. What that means is if you've been to a notary public, or you've had to have uh, uh, papers, uh, legal papers and documents witnessed, you, that is what a seal is. It is saying, I promise you, this is legit. I give myself to you. I say to you. And we've turned it all upside down and said, well, baptism is all about me coming to uh, the font and saying to, uh, the, to the Lord, I'll be yours. Like, really? I mean, what, who, who does that? You know who does that? Western uh, Americans who believe that our rights trump God's rights. You know if you if we keep doing that, do you know what he's going to say to us? I don't think so, not till you humble yourselves down there, not till you say me for you, not till you agree that I have come for you and not you coming to me and say, "Oh I accept you, nah, maybe not. No, we come and we bow to the king because in his hands is a hand of judgment, he could strike you down, yes, do you does anyone in this room live under the illusion that your life is your own and that you can just determine what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes? Anyone, really? Do you know if you just sit in your chair and you think, okay, I'm going to show Chuck that he's wrong. I'm just going to sit here and I'll, I promise you I'm going to stay alive for the next 15 minutes. You know what, we could find a way to stop that. All right? I mean really who thinks like that I have control of my life I'm the captain of my own ship I'm the I'm the chief of my own destiny I can do whatever I want I go wherever I want I can do whatever I want you know I mean what do any of you have children What do you do when your children tell you that You just squeeze them and say no you can And it doesn't even take all your effort cuz they're they're just little kids They're little guys you can control them. And God's that way with us. I mean, come on. We cannot shake our fists in His hands and say, I'll do what I want and I'll go where I want. No, the waters of baptism are saying judgment is coming. The flood is coming. And baptism is saying, I know it's coming. I need an ark. And so we go and we get this symbol, this sign placed on us of water. And that water is God saying to us, I will protect you like I protected Noah. I will float. In the coming judgment, you will ride up on eagles' wings. The flood, the judgment that crushes the world, will cause you to live. The flood is catastrophic judgment, listen, as well as miraculous life-giving salvation. Dr. Edmund Clowney says this in his his commentary, The water that destroyed the wicked also bore up the ark. Baptism is that symbol, and Holy Spirit is the seal of that symbol. So that when you fail, not if you fail, but when you do, you don't resort to your own power and your own strength to return to Him. But rather you look to the Holy Spirit. Why? Why? After you sin, how do you feel after your sin? Don't you feel bad? Most people feel bad. I'm the only one. God help me. I'm the only one. No, we all feel bad after we sin. How do you account for that? Is it just because you're really a good person that you feel bad? No, the Holy Spirit is moving in you and saying, run from this. Get away from this. This is going to kill you. This is going to put you in prison. This is going to enslave you. This is going to drive you down into the ground. This will will take away your flesh from their bones and make you nothing. Run, run, run. That's why we don't feel right about sin. We know it's wrong. The call, the return, that is the seal that the Holy Spirit is drawing us back to Him every time we sin, every time we fail Him. Jesus Christ is the ark. Judgment is coming. The Noah story is what, what uh, Peter is drawing on, and he's saying, so we need baptism. We need the sign and the seal in our lives, that the, the sign of judgment, that will also be the sign of salvation. Therefore, baptism saves you. It corresponds this way you see it? Not literally, but figuratively, by analogy, metaphorically. I don't know how many more adjectives I can think of. Three is about my limit. That's what he's saying in the Noah story. Don't get caught up in all the other stuff and the other interpretations are not helpful. Jesus Christ is the ark. Why are those things important? Folks, let me tell you two things. Two things. First of all, with respect to the first one, the atonement and mission of Jesus, if everyone in this room, if you don't daily absolutely anchor your life to the atoning work of Christ and believe in your heart and resort to Him every day that God is saying to you, me for you, if that does not become the foundation upon which you build your life, Christianity is going to be a really stressful Uncomfortable, unhappy thing for you, and I do not recommend it. I'm going to tell you, you say, Oh my gosh, this guy's a minister. Don't. Go find another religion. Really. I'm being as honest as I can. Do not become a Christian if you are not willing to build your entire every moment, every living breath, every second of your life on the reality that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you, went into the grave for you, suffered and died for you, and as you and that forevermore He said He who knew no sin was made to be sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. If you're not going to make that the very foundation of your life and every breath you breathe then do not become a Christian. It will be the most horrific possible religion that you could choose on the other hand if point two he 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 came the the story of baptism if on the other hand you say no I'm going to come to baptism I'm going to bury myself in that baptism I'm going to let the Holy Spirit pour himself on me and in effect put me to death so that I can be buoyed up carried on those waves of the flood that's going to be the story of my life that will introduce into you a power that you never dreamed possible not so that you won't have to suffer but so that when you do suffer it has some meaning when you lose your job because you're a Christian or you, or you get sick, uh, any kind of suffering. Although Peter's talking specifically about suffering because you're a Christian, being uh, alienated and marginalized in society, you could underneath that, you could put all kinds of suffering because we live in a fallen world. And so what is he saying to us? He's saying if you will lay hold of your baptism and hold on to it, and trust that God is promising something to you. You're not saying anything to God. I promised this and this. I've promised Him a million. Th- I'm ashamed to say it. But I have to use myself. I don't want to use one of you. It would embarrass you. But I could say it about anyone, right? But I can say it about myself. I have broken every promise I ever made to Jesus. And so have you. So welcome to the club. Every one of the promises you've made, you've broken. Who paid for that? Do you think God just goes, all the oxen free? No, when we break our promise, when we're disobedient, He looks at something that you must look at every day of your life, and that's the cross. And what the cross is represented by is our baptism. Our baptism is saying to us, we were marked with a mark. It's invisible to the world. Nobody can see it but Him. And he validates that mark. He says, this is my signature across the life of, G- of, of Chuck Isaac. My signature goes here. And God signs it Himself in His blood of His Son. And He says to every one of us, every, every, the cosmic powers, whatever's out there, He says, right here it is. This is it. I dare you to come against My children. They live because I live. And if that doesn't become the groundwork of your life, you're going to be be miserable in your Christianity. There's going to be nothing there. Just another religion. Finally, he conquered. Look at verse 22. This is where he's going. Peter's going to this. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. So what Peter is saying, look, I, Peter didn't know what all was out there any more than we do. But what he is saying is, every power, every authority, everything you can imagine in your, in your wildest imagination, all has been made subject to Him. And therefore, no matter what happens in your life, doesn't matter whatever... Trend, and listen, I'm 62 years old. I know that I look forty, and thank you. (laughs) Look, every one of—I've lived a pretty long time now, and so have many of you. Some of you are just starting out in life. You think none of that's going to happen to me? Well, come back and see me in forty or fifty years. That's a joke. (laughs) I'm not going to be here forty, fifty. Go and see somebody else in 40 or 50 years. You're going to have all those things in your life. You're going to say, gosh, you know, wow, he was right. Life is tough. You have problems. You have suffering. You have broken lives, broken marriages, broken children, broken parents, broken spouses, broken everything, broken governments, broken world. And what this is saying, he conquered. What he's telling you and I, just bringing it down to our life right now, here and now, is you have nothing to fear. Do not fear. Do not wring your hands. Do not be afraid. When the powers and authorities, whatever they are, whatever it is, when I talk with people and they start talking to me about the devil and Satan's doing this and Satan's doing that, I I just tell them, usually I say, if I can get a word in, because everybody loves talking about the devil, I try to say, stop, 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 stop. Let me hear you talk about Jesus. What about Him? Oh, but you don't know the enemy this and the enemy that. you know what? <laughs> if you read this passage, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus, through Peter, telling us? He conquered all them. Doesn't mean you ignore them. Doesn't mean you pretend they don't exist. They'd love that too. Doesn't mean that. What it means is the posture of your life is one in which you're going to step into the water of your baptism. Into what has covered you. poured poured itself out on you, the cross of Jesus Christ, that that's where you're going to resort, and that you have nothing to fear. Oh, you don't know, Chuck, my kids have gone sideways. Yes, I do know. Well, you don't know, my wife doesn't love me anymore. I can't say that about Mati V. But other wives don't love their husbands. You get the picture, right? There's nothing that we have to fear. Will you suffer through it? Yes. Will you lament? Of course. But you don't have to fear. And so you can build your life on Christ. The Apostle Peter, uh, Paul said this. Paul said this. Let me finish. In Christ, God was reconciling the world or bringing it back into order, reconciling it, making it at peace with Him. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Will you trust Him? Will you do it? I pray that you will. Father, uh, we love You and thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy that endures forever. I do pray, Father, that each one of us today, as we come to the Lord's table, we will absolutely fix our hearts and lives on the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and the conquering of hell and death itself for us, that we'll put our lives on that. That every, every foundation we have will be built upon that rock. Help us to do it, Father. Many of us are suffering in ways that are hard to even describe. Please help us. Have mercy, I pray. Amen.